Stand with me as we rise this morning to read our sermon text. You can turn your Bibles to John chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you today, I would encourage you to use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you or nearby you, and you'll find the text this morning on page 888. And what we're going to look at today is verse 22 through 36 of John 3. So let me read that passage for us and then... I pray for God's blessing upon our study, and, and we'll begin together. So listen once again as the Lord does speak to you through his perfect word. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Ainon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and the people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom and the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him greatly rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease." He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Lord, we know that the earth is full of your steadfast love and We ask that you would teach us your truth, that we might delight in you this day, that you would likewise deal with us according to your steadfast love. For we know that your word is righteous forever. And so give us understanding that we may live through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. One of the greatest American conductors of the last 100 years was asked on an occasion, what was the hardest instrument to play in the orchestra? And he responded quite quickly by saying, second fiddle. And he went on to say more specifically, quote, I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find one who plays a second violin with as much enthusiasm, now that's a problem. And yet, if no one plays second, we have no harmony. We live in a world, don't we? Our culture and the world writ large doesn't want anyone 
to play second fiddle to anyone about anything. And yet we come to a text today which records for us the last words of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. And what we find John the Baptist declaring is not only was he content to play something like second fiddle to Jesus Christ, he actually knew it was a divine duty for him to play such a role as the king now in this gospel takes center stage and John the Baptist fully and finally recedes to the background. And I don't know if it's because I'm a pastor that I get these questions often, maybe you do as well, but it's quite common throughout an ordinary month that children or even children in my home uh, will ask me, what, what outside of Jesus or who outside of Jesus is your, your favorite Bible character? Who's the person you'd most like to meet from the Bible other than Jesus? And normally I have one of three answers that I give. One would be Moses that redeemer and mediator that the Old Testament says knew God as a friend face to face. Such was the nearness of their communion. Another person I often mention is the prophet Elijah, you know, the prophet that never died, whose prayer shut up the heavens and opened the heavens, and yet the New Testament author James says, Elijah's just like us in such powerful prayer. But on weeks like this, I would normally say, well, I want to meet John the Baptist. Because uh, here's a man that, that Jesus himself says is the greatest man ever born of woman. You know, here's a man that's so great, so singular is his role, that his job description was prophesied 700 some odd years before he was even born. Uh, here's a man who was utterly fearless in his, his preaching of Christ, but who has a meekness about him that is quite astounding and even... I trust attractive, and I want to attract you to something of that meekness today because the simple main idea that we have in our text is John is going to recede to the background for the rest of this gospel. It's found in that summary declaration that you see in verse 30 there in the passage before you. Christ must increase. Now, that's the simple idea that I want to put before you today and trust the Spirit in His own sovereign wisdom would apply it particularly and specifically to how you need that truth for Christ to increase in your life. So there's three simple sections to the text. You might have noticed that students as I was reading it. First, there's this confrontation about Jesus' rising influence. Then John gives an illustration about who Jesus is and ends with an explanation about the supremacy, the superiority of Christ Jesus. So I want to get after our main idea with three simple words, children. First, we're going to see jealousy. Then secondly, we're going to see Jesus' identity before we think about the testimony that comes at the end. And if you notice the first verse of our text simply says, the first phrase is after this. So if you haven't been with us in recent weeks, let's briefly summarize what came before this. Now, we left off last week in John 3, 16 through 21 in what might rightly be called the, the most famous, greatest declaration in all the Bible about what we could say is the free offer of the gospel. And all of that came after a night conversation that Jesus had with this old man in Israel, this wealthy influential, brilliant teacher in Jerusalem named Nicodemus. 
And we saw old man Nicodemus show up to Jesus one night, and Jesus says, the young Messiah says, Nicodemus, you might have this perfect pedigree. You might have perfect performance according to the Old Testament law. But unless you are born again, Nicodemus, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. And then by the end of that conversation, what we saw Jesus say to Nicodemus was, uh, the way to be born again, to be made new spiritually, is that you have to look up at the Son of Man who's going to be lifted up, which we know by the end of this gospel is on the cursed cross at Calvary. And Jesus likened it to the story in the Old Testament with Moses lifting up this bronze serpent that all who were afflicted and plagued, who were dying, that they would look upon that bronze serpent and live in the same way Nicodemus and people like you and me. If we are to be made new, we must look up. And the reason why the Son came to be lifted up, we saw last week in what is perhaps the most famous verse in all of the Bible, John 3.16, the motivation for it was God's love for the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so what the text is telling us over and over is that if someone wants to pass from that old life of sin into the new life of salvation, they have, they have to look to Jesus, they have to believe in Jesus, they have to trust in the Savior. And in a way that's going to somewhat recede to the background later on in this gospel, but it actually continues well through chapter 4 that you're going to see, Lord willing, next week. And even into the next few chapters, the early portion of John's recounting of Jesus' earthly ministry keeps showing how old things are giving way to new things, or something old is giving way to the true thing. So the story of Jesus began in John chapter 2 with this kind of old wine of Old Testament purification, giving way to this, this new wine of a full freedom of cleansing and joy in Jesus Christ. In the very next scene, the old place of worship, the temple. Now we saw is giving way to the new place of worship, which is the body of Jesus Christ. He's telling Nicodemus in that conversation before our passage that that old prophecy of water and spirit, it's giving way to, to the new birth that's found in Jesus. And old passes to new again today as John gives way to Jesus. And it all begins with jealousy over Jesus. Because look again at verse 22 through the end. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. It might be interesting to glance over to verse 2 of chapter 4. If your Bible is open in front of you, it'll tell you that Jesus actually wasn't the one doing the baptizing. It was his disciples doing so under his authority and oversight. He wasn't the only one baptizing and attracting interest in crowds in and around Jerusalem. You glance down at verse 23, we're told that John also was baptizing at Ainon near Salim, and people were coming to him. So students, you can picture something of the spiritual scene in the holy city of Jerusalem and its surrounding area. Uh, you have, according to the geographic markers in this text, you have John baptizing to the north of Jerusalem. You have Jesus baptizing to the south of Jerusalem. Great crowds are belonging to both, but people are increasingly leaving John's northern area to go to where Jesus is in that southern area of Jerusalem. And as so often happens with followers between two magnetic preachers, uh, there begins to foment some jealousy. 
Now, if you were living in London in the late 19th century and were a professing Christian, you would, you would have been seemingly within a stone's throw of these number of churches that were full of some of the greatest preachers that ever belonged to the English language. So, for example, there was a preacher named F.B. Meyer who pastored a church named Christ Church there in London. Very well-known preacher, very well-known evangelist, but somewhat forgotten in his time, let alone in our time, because he ministered between what he called two brothers on each side. So on his right side was the Metropolitan Tabernacle, pastored by the most famous preacher in all the world at the time, Charles Spurgeon. On the left side, at Westminster Chapel, it was pastored by this rising preacher in England, Campbell Morgan. And there was a time where F.B. Meyer was talking with some people about his desire for revival to fall, for interest, awakening, and attraction to come to his church. And he said that he had made a point that he wasn't going to pray for that blessing to come to his local congregation because he was worried that such a selfish prayer might mean he would miss out. And so what he decided to do in a way that was very true to his character, he said, I pray for my big brother on the right side, Charles Spurgeon, to get a blessing. I pray for my other brother on the left side, Campbell Morgan, to get a blessing and trust out of the overflow of their blessing. I will get something in my little cup here at Christ Church. Uh, there was no rivalry whatsoever. There was no jealousy. But you notice, there's rivalry and jealousy in Jerusalem at that time. Look at verse 25 and 26. A discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. These disciples came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. It's almost as though what they're saying, if we put it in more kind of colloquial language for us today, John, everybody's leaving to go to him. We won't say his name, but they're leaving to go to him. What are you going to do about it? And some of you have been around churches long enough to know that sometimes the easiest way you can expose the natural tendency even within Christian leaders, Christian pastors, and Christian church members to be jealous over things in Christ's kingdom. As just mention a local church that's bigger and that has more apparent fruitfulness than that church in which you find yourself. And watch pastors, leaders, and church members begin almost to reflexively start speak words of bitterness, of pettiness, maybe even of jealousy at the fruitfulness of another church. John, everybody's leaving to go to Jesus. There's jealousy over Jesus. And it provides a stage for John to give what might be one of the greatest descriptions, declarations of true gospel ministry that you're going to find in the Bible. And it all begins, you'll notice verse 27 with an explanation. And John says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. Whatever's come to us, it's from heaven. Whatever's come to him, it's from heaven. God has apportioned things perfectly, my disciples, John is saying. Don't be surprised, because God is not surprised at what's going on. And he goes on to say, doesn't he, verse 28, you yourselves bear witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but you have heard me say I've been sent before him. In other words, guys, what are you so surprised about? 
Haven't you been listening as I've been baptizing by the river? I've been calling people, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm just a witness. I'm just a voice crying out in the wilderness. Don't pay attention to me. Actually, all of you just go to him. He's the one you're supposed to go to anyway. Why are you so worried that people are going to him, is what he says. And then he gives an illustration, verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And so you see, students, I trust the kind of application of these characters in the illustration to the spiritual situation there in Jerusalem. Because who's the bride? Well, it's God's people. It's the church. Every person there listening to John would have known this. It was very rich throughout the Old Testament story, throughout even the prophet's ministry in the Old Testament, that Israel, God's chosen people, the church is likened to God's bride. So who then, of course, is the bridegroom? Well, it's Jesus. But it's a not-so-subtle declaration even of the divine identity of Jesus because who is the husband of God's people throughout the Old Testament but God himself? So if the bride is the church in John's illustration, if the groom is Jesus in John's illustration, what then does that make John? According to verse 29, he's the friend. What we would say more in our context and time, he's the best man at the wedding. Now you need to know something about weddings in that first century context to know why this would have struck home to those disciples that were following after John the Baptist. Because to be a best man, it was a a righteous and respected position. And it came with great responsibility because it was normally the best man who oversaw and organized the entire wedding experience. It was his delight. It was also his duty to ensure that everything happened so that the bride and the bridegroom finally at long last came together. And then once that happened, there was was great joy. And that's happening, John is saying with Jesus in his ministry. So it's not surprising, you'll notice the end of verse 29, he speaks about the fullness of joy that he has, and that leads to the declaration, verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now, there was a book that arrived at my house earlier this week that had the title of Embracing Obscurity. It was written by an author named Anonymous. Evidently, this book, you know, was published a little over 10 years ago by someone who supposedly is a well-established author whose true identity is only known to three or four people in the publishing house, but because of the nature of the book, thought it appropriate to release the book anonymously because the book is nothing more than several chapters about what it means to become nothing in light of God's everything, what it becomes for ordinary Christian disciples to embrace obscurity. And you see, that's exactly what John's doing in verse 30. He's embracing obscurity, and he's content about it. He must increase. I must decrease. There's even a majestic mandate about it, isn't it? I must decrease. He must increase. This has been the whole point all along. Because why pay attention to the herald when the king has finally arrived? 
Why pay attention to the forerunner at the voice in the wilderness when the Messiah has finally arrived? Great and glorious things belong over there where Jesus is because he has a great and glorious message. Christ must increase, John says. And it's to that glorious message that the text comes in the third and last section, which is the testimony. So we've seen the jealousy and the identity. Look at the testimony to Jesus that begins in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. It's hard to know exactly, just as it was last week, if it's here in verse 31 that John, who writes this gospel, is now speaking. It's not John the Baptist. I think it's actually more likely that John the Baptist is probably speaking. It really doesn't matter because the truth is plain enough, isn't it? In verse 31, children, there's this comparison. Jesus is from heaven. John is from earth. Jesus, therefore, is greater than John. John's just the pointer. Jesus is the point. John just is the witness. Jesus is the way. And as to the witness, notice that he comes in verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. If you glance back to verse 11 of chapter 3, you'll see in that nightly conversation or that night conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus that he told Nicodemus, you know, hey, John and I are preaching and no one's listening to us. It uses language of, of you have not received our testimony, which is a corporate language of saying you all in Israel have not received our testimony. So there might be crowds, there might be these great groups that belong to I know near Salim and where Jesus is down south of Jerusalem might have great crowds, but there certainly isn't at this point great faith. Not many people are actually believing in who Jesus is. You know, some of you in the room today, I know you're preparing for gospel ministry. Some of you are praying to find the Lord send you into gospel ministry. And uh, there should be something, shouldn't there, of an application to your own future experience should the Lord allow if, if John wasn't listened to, if they didn't pay attention to Jesus. There's going to be a lot of times in your ministry people don't pay attention to you either. They don't listen to you. They might reject what you say. But you have to have, I think, spirit-fueled optimism and faith that people will, some people will listen, because clearly that's happening too. Not everybody is listening, but notice verse 33. He says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. It seems likely what the text is alluding to is a reality in the first century where not everybody knew how to write their name. So if you were to sign something, you know, affix your agreement perhaps to something like a contract. Uh, what you wouldn't do is sign your name because you didn't know how to write your name. But you would kind of stamp your seal, your, your family's seal uh, upon the document. And, and the question then that uh, you should hear from verse 33 is, is whether or not you've stamped your seal on the truth of Christ Jesus. Whoever hears the gospel message the truth that a Savior has come to be lifted up, that all might look upon him and live. To, to believe that is to set your seal upon the truth. But he's using very blunt language, isn't he, there at the end of verse 33 by simply telling us God is true. It's, it's clarity that's 
meant to confront your conscience in this way. If you believe in Jesus, what you're saying at some degree of an ultimate level, God is true. Because the next text, as we're getting ready to see in the next verse, talks about the message coming from God himself. But of course, the opposite end of the equation, to, to reject the truth of Jesus, is to say God's a liar, that God is false. And the message that Jesus is preaching, the message that John is preaching, it does come from God as its source. Notice verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. I think this is clearly talking about the Spirit's fullness falling on Jesus Christ. You might know in the, in the Old Testament that oftentimes when, when God had called prophets to a specific work, he, he filled them with His Spirit for that appointed task. But the language here is meant to, by way of comparison and contrast, and show us the supremacy and superiority of Jesus Christ is that the Spirit has fallen upon Him without measure. And as such, He can dispense of the Spirit, send the Spirit, overflow the Spirit into those who follow Him and believe in Him. Not only does He have the fullness of the Spirit, notice verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He has the fullness of the Spirit, Jesus does. He has the fullness of all things, the text is telling us. That God has placed into Jesus' hands the eternal Son of God whom He has loved from eternity past. He's placed into His hands the fullness thereof, the keys to redemptive history, the way in which the kingdom must be ushered in. He's given to the Savior the way of salvation for sinners. Of course, that person, this is what John is saying, of course, that person must Increase, and I must decrease. Many of you know that today's last Sunday that I have with you for a number of months as uh, the elders have graciously allowed me to take a two-month sabbatical to work on some writing projects, these book projects that are well past due. And then at the end of the time together, our family kind of bundles our annual vacation weeks all into one. And so it's something like early September uh, when I'll come back. And one of those uh, books that I got to get to writing, it's tentatively titled, at least at the moment, uh, Heart for Revival. So Lord willing, tomorrow morning, I'll, I'll wake up in the dark 30 hours of the morning and get to my study and sit down and start typing away and I think about this revival of old, and a part of the reason is because revival is a subject that's long fascinated me. It's something I've uh, long prayed for. It's not something I think that I've ever uh, experienced in a way that at least I understand it to be true according to Scripture. And so this book, it tells the story of, of another pastor from centuries past who, who's fascinated by revival, who prayed for revival, and he even experienced revival famously in his own time. But the revival came when he wasn't there. And it was actually just as he had predicted, this revival. And so it happened some eight months before that he had written a letter to one of his friends. And he simply said this, I sometimes think that a great blessing may come to my people in my absence. Often God does not bless us in the midst of our labors, lest we shall say my hand and eloquence have done it. 
He removes us into silence and then pours down a blessing so there's no room to receive it, that all who receive it might cry out, it is of the Lord. And I think that's quite true. That's so oftentimes when you look at these awakenings that fall upon God's people, these times of renewed spiritual interest and fervor, even a desire for the Savior and the fullness of His salvation, it tends to come in unexpected ways. They're even unexpected servants. And what you want to know from our text today here in John chapter 3, maybe you haven't read it this way before in Jerusalem, if you match the gospel accounts together, Jerusalem is in the midst of revival fever. There's awakening that has shocked the spiritual and religious leaders in the land. And what's troubling John's disciples is the revival power. It no longer is with their master. It's gone to someone else. And they have jealousy over it. But, but then John says, it's the way it's supposed to be. Because he must increase and I must decrease. So what I want to do here at the end knowing that the Lord's sending me off for a period of time, is let you know that I truly trust that there's going to be immense blessing that falls upon you in the midst of the coming weeks and months that genuinely I don't think would fall if I was here. At least that's what I'm praying for. And I think that's what you should expect. And what I want to do is take from this passage four simple things that I want to see the Lord revive in you, grow in you, maybe awaken in you as it's shown forth in John's final scene. So the first thing I want to put before your attention from this passage is that the Lord make you grateful. That the Lord make you grateful. Look again at verse 27. Uh, John begins his explanation to his jealous disciples by simply saying, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. What's been given to me, brothers, is what he's telling his disciples. It's what I'm supposed to receive. Therefore, what's given to you is what you're supposed to receive. What's given to Jesus, that's exactly what he's supposed to receive. And do you not see that John is absolutely grateful that heaven has given him this? I wonder if you're in here today and you think of what heaven has given you. And maybe you think, I wish it was something else. I wish it was someone else. May the Lord make you grateful, number two. May the Lord make you joyful. You see the end again of verse 29. He says that the friend, the best man, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I wonder if you've ever reached a point in your life in Jesus Christ where you can say, my joy is now complete because I have him Uh, The kind of joy that washes out our tendency to whine, that that kills our tendency to complain, that drowns out uh, our drudgery. Here is John saying, I've heard the master's voice and that's enough for me to be joyful all of my days. So there's the hope that he makes you grateful. There's the hope that he makes you joyful. Thirdly, there's the hope that he makes you humble. Uh, One old English judge named John Selden once quipped, humility is the virtue that all men preach, that no person practices, and still everyone is content to hear. 
Nobody practices it, but everybody knows they need to hear about it. Because isn't humility the the first lesson we learn in Christ? Humility is the last lesson uh, we learn in, in Christ. Humility is what grabs God's smile according to God's word. It's God's grace that belongs to the humble. And is not John saying here, I must be humble. He must increase and I must decrease. And I wonder if according to our English Bible, if you can capture those seven words in a simple sentence and understand how it should genuinely transform every situation and circumstance of your life. That if you find yourself in your home thinking, he must increase, but I must decrease. Children, students, when you return to school, Lord willing, in a few months, he must increase, but I must decrease. Maybe even in your workplace, he must increase, but I must decrease. And every success and every sorrow and every sadness and every situation, every trial, every trouble, and every single tribulation that might come your way, and even triumphs too, he must increase, but I must decrease. May make you grateful. May he make you joyful. May he make you humble. Fourthly, finally, may he make you faithful. Because in a way that's so fitting to this chapter, and I think it is John the Baptist speaking there in verse 36. Notice the crescendo that comes at the end. His final words spoken in this gospel. What does he say? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Someone once asked me, you know, Jordan, what do you see when you preach? Like, well, what do you see out there when you're in the midst of the congregation? I think if you ask John the Baptist that question, wouldn't it be quite clear? I see two different kinds of people. I see people that have believed in Jesus, and so they're already abiding in the life that's found in him. I see people, too, that are rejecting Jesus, and God's wrath remains on them. You know, it's true, isn't it, that you'll live your whole life, and you always have to grow in being grateful, joyful, and humble. But you may not live another week. You may not even see out throughout this day before final words will be required of you. And I wonder if those final words will be ones of eternal life. Final words that recognize if he doesn't increase and if I don't decrease, that means I deserve his eternal judgment and punishment and penalty forever. But if my faith is full in Christ and I'm utterly content to embrace obscurity and find gratitude, humility, joy and faith welling up in my heart, guess what is upon you even now? You'll notice it again, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Isn't that the awakening for which we want, for which we need? For which we should pray. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do ask today that you would 
bring us evermore into a love for Christ Jesus. A love that swallows all our sins, that brings us the cleansing forgiveness that's found in Christ alone, that brings us the life that we have in his name. And so help us this day to look to him evermore with hearts of love, and that you would be kind to us, that you would grow us in grace. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.